This is AutoLine Extra, available exclusively on the internet. Here again is John McElroy. Talking with me right now is Tony Bon Jovi, an acoustic engineer by background who has come up with a new way of putting audio in cars that is going to revolutionize possibly the automotive audio business. But before we get started on talking about that, Tony, because nobody knows who you are, I think, that's watching this very second. Maybe a few do. Some may be, yeah. Give us a little bit of background. Whatever got you into the acoustic business or the music business? When, when I was uh, in high school in 1965 and 1966, I wanted to get more involved in the audio industry professionally. I wanted to make records or work in film or television, but mostly... So you're records. just a high school kid dreaming of doing kid. this. But there was, in, in that... Error. There were no uh, secondary education uh, places to go, schools or colleges or universities that had programs for that. And of course, today, right, right here at Wayne State, they have, and the University of Michigan has an extensive program that teaches that, recording arts and science. So um, it, during my time in high school, I would go into New York City and manage to get to know uh, some of the engineers that worked for Columbia and, I, and RCA and, and, and uh, Capitol Records and some of the independent studios. And um, I talked with uh, human resources at, at Columbia. I said, what do I have to do to work here? So we well, have to get a degree in electrical engineering, and then you serve a two-year apprenticeship, and then you'll, get to, you'll be evaluated, and you, you know, if you have what it takes, you'll be able to work in our studios. If not, you can work at CBS Broadcast Center, or you can work uh, at CBS Radio Network, or you can work at CBS Laboratories up in Connecticut. And RCA, Columbia, and Capital all had the same uh, profile that they wanted you to file to, to get into their uh, studios. And um, okay, so I'm studying, I'm going to become an electrical engineer, and I'm going to do all this stuff. Well, while that's going on, I was able to build some equipment because you, there really wasn't too much to buy. And I had a garage that was all concrete and made that into an echo chamber because back then the echo chambers were not digital, they were rooms. At that time, in the 1960s, uh, the mid-1960s, Motown Records was probably the premier record label than everyone in New York, and I can only talk about New York because that's where I'm from, uh, everybody wanted that sound. And the Motown sound was a, was a combination of songwriting, talent, the singing style, the musicianship, and the arranging. And they had one other quality. They had a sonic quality to those records. Well, the in, Motown sound. The Motown sound. It was all encompassed in that. Uh, and of course, the record companies at the time would tell their A&R departments, those are the people responsible for signing, we need an artist like the Supremes, or we need an artist like the Temptations, or whatever, with Tammy Terrell. And then they'd go, and the A&R guys say, you're a songwriter, give me a song like this, and you're an arranger, give me some charts like this, and find some musicians that can play this. And they, they tried, and they came pretty close. There were some big hits like uh, One, Two, Three with Len Barry, and A Lover's Concerto with the Toys, and, and Everlasting Love. And uh, those were Philadelphia. Philadelphia's answer in New York and Nashville's answer to that sound and those records were selling but the one thing that they couldn't figure out in New York is what is it about the sound that made those Motown records sound that way what are they doing well in New York the you know you, you're working with engineers as well they must be doing something with the snare drum or the, there's got to be a, a special microphone we'll, we'll try and they tried all these things and couldn't come close and one day I was listening to the, a Supremes record, Where'd Our Love Go? And, and I'm listening, and the, the reverberation was decaying faster than it should. Now, 
the way these rooms are designed, these are physical rooms, and they're supposed to, like a, like a bathroom or a gymnasium, when, it, when it's, the sound hits, it, it stays for three to five seconds. And, and, that's normal, and then it decays around three to five seconds, so you get the echo, which is what everybody used. But there was something peculiar about this Motown echo. It didn't sound right to me. So I slowed the record down, and I timed the, the, the interval in between, and I said, this is decaying so many, about six or eight dB, and it shouldn't be doing that. And I could measure that. So I went back and I, I got uh, some recordings and I fooled around and uh, I modified this and I started to add this modified echo to already existing recordings. And I said, I think that's it because they're starting to sound like the Motown records a little bit. So I get in, get on the train and take off from school and get in and they, they had the Audio Engineering Society and they'd have their, their uh, seminars, and then after, a bunch of them would get together at a coffee shop, and, and I had befriended a studio owner, and he'd let me, and I would listen, because I'm trying to learn, and everything was secret. Columbia was doing this, and they wouldn't tell RCA, and they hated each other. RCA hated Columbia. And uh, so I'm sitting there, and I said, I think I figured out what they're doing out there. One of the things, I said, well, what is it? I said, I think they have a very short decay time on that reverberation that they're applying to those records. Oh, that's impossible, said a Columbia. I, I just wrote a paper on the effects of uh, temperature and humidity on, on frequency response and decay time, and no engineer would ever build anything like that. That's impossible. They would not do that. I said, I think they are. Listen, I'm not interested. Can't be. No way. I said, okay. So I went back to New Jersey, and I picked up the phone, and I called information. I said, I want the phone number of Motown Records, 2648 West Grand Boulevard. The address is right on the bottom. Well, at Motown, can I help you? So I want to speak to the chief engineer. I knew what to do. I'm a senior in high school. The fellow says, Mike McLean here. I proceeded to tell him what I thought. And there was this long silence. He says, how do you know? What makes you think we're doing that? And I told him the whole story. And he said, there's somebody coming into New York because we're doing something at the Copacabana. I want you to meet this guy. I'm going to tell him your name. And you go, and you go there at 7 o'clock, whatever the showtime was. And I meet the guy, and I told him the whole story, and I played him this little tape that I had made introducing that echo on there. He said, how did you figure this out? And I told him the story. He said, would you like to come to Detroit? I said, would I? He said, well, yeah. So I went back, and I told my parents, and I said, I'm going to go to Detroit. He said, you're going to go what? Now, I'm you know, from New Jersey, never been outside of the town, never been on a commercial airliner. So the guy from Motown came and talked to my parents, and they, they wanted to be sure. They said, your son will be okay. We have, a, we have like a wrangler for him. There was a girl assigned to me to make sure because I was underage. They said, we, and I said, I want to go. I, I don't care about school. But by now, my engineering uh, pursuits were modified heavily because I was spending more time and I figured out this Motown. They flew me to Detroit and they put me in the Motown studios. And I discovered not only that, but they had eight track and they had all these cool innovations. They were the most technologically advanced studio at the time. You're saying 8-track back then was leading oh, edge. Wait, that was it. Eight different channels. You could separate the instruments. New York had 4-track. You could actually talk to the artist while they were recording. In New York, you couldn't do that. When you try to talk, it's just like if your control room wants to talk to you, they're either talking over your earpiece or it would come over the loudspeaker. They didn't, and so this, and they couldn't do that there. And then you can turn little, the instruments on and off, and you could edit and do all this. Well, the editing was something that you could do. But nobody ever thought about this and the way they recorded it. And they didn't set out at Motown to say, we're going to build the most technologically advanced studio. That evolved out of necessity. Producers wanted to be able to do that. They wanted to eliminate things and rearrange the music and copy it. So, but, but planned or not, what you're saying is 
Motown Records, uh, Hitsville, USA, there on West Grand Boulevard in Detroit, was one of the most technologically Technologic. advanced they, studios. That was the first studio, the first record label that, and the first production technique that actually used the studio as part of the production process. In New York, you would have an arranger and musicians, and the, the studio was there to take whatever they did in that room and put it on that piece of tape, and then you were finished with it. That was it. But there, they, the, the studio became an integral part of the production. Like, like today, today's records with the digital technology, it's commonplace to have 100 tracks. But they, they were the first ones to do that. Now, I was the only outsider that had access to And that. a high school kid. And a high school kid on top of that. So... Um, uh, the day of my SATs, I was out here in, at the St. Regis Hotel. Uh, that's where they would put me when, when I came here. And, and of course, uh, I had an option to, Rutgers University finally came and said, well, you know, you're not going to go to Cambridge. Forget it, because you, you, there's no way you're going to get in. You didn't even take rest. But if you go to summer school, you take it because of what you've done uh, in Detroit, we'll let you go to school at the Bush campus and get your degree. So I had to think, and then my first job, in the summertime of that year was for $180 working for a company called Pierce Southern Music making demos. And I thought, and I was getting job offers all over the place because I knew what they did and at, I had Motown. My, at Motown. I was the only person on the planet outside of those people here in Detroit. But where are you going to, you know, it's, it's one thing to leak how the music is made, but Motown was, was encapsulated in this Detroit you know, isolated in New York City, they would have found out right away what they were doing had they been located there. But since they were here, nobody knew what they were doing. They were very secretive about what they were doing. And you just couldn't walk in the studio. There were guards there, not only to protect with the technology, but also to make sure that nobody walked out of there with something that they shouldn't have. In, in fact, that's my original, you brought this out. This is my original identification original card to get card in. Yeah, that's that, a copy of it. An ID yeah. card of being that. able to get, get into, into the... Right. The Motown Studios. Yes. When I was here in Detroit, if I didn't produce that card, I couldn't go to work. So was the money good doing this? Well, Motown, uh, they paid me pretty good uh, because I was an outside person being brought in. They asked me to move to Detroit. So I, I, I'm not even out of high school yet. I don't know if I want to live in Detroit. You know, I'm too young to move to Detroit, I thought. And I didn't, I didn't want to be out here. I, I liked New York, and I liked New Jersey, and the Jersey Shore, and, and all of that. But they flew me out on a regular basis. Ralph Seltzer uh, was in charge of, uh, I forgot his exact title, but uh, you know, I, they fly me out and said, we want you to work on this. Pro I worked on the um, Love Child project, and uh, they had the I don't know if it's still there, the Pontchartrain Hotel. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, they would go there, and they would have uh, brainstorming sessions on the music, and then they, I was one of the people invited in to do that, and everybody got to work with everybody. Well, that was not commonplace in New York. If you were the engineer in the studio, and you were the producer, and, and that's the artist, and that's it. But Motown had such flexibility. Uh, when I would spend time here, I would go into the tape library, and I'd pull out those recordings that I knew, and I'd put them up, and I'd realize, well, wait a minute, this tape has things on it that my record doesn't have on it. They're actually turning things on and off, and in New York, you can't do that because it's on four track. So they used the studio technology to create those records, and when you listen to those records, they still hold up today. So they had all this, and I realized, and I soaked all this up, and I took copious notes and went back and said, this is what they're doing. So ultimately, when I built my power station studios in New York City in the 1970s, it quickly became the most famous uh, 
pop pop studio and, and because it was designed as a multi-track studio. I had these little ancillary rooms. Oh, Motown had that too. So Power Station was like a Motown on steroids. That's where Motown would have gone. Everything about the studio that I did in New York, I learned from there. I even bought, when they moved to California, I bought equipment from the, the equalizers that they had. I bought whatever I could get. And, and in New York City, I actually built a room, uh, an echo chamber, that had that short decay time by design. And, and we used all these, all these things. So everything that I learned at Motown is what uh, gave me the ability to have a very successful career as a producer. And then all my engineering stuff would, I did in aviation and in other, other marine applications. But and as a producer, you've worked with some of the most famous people in the I, business. I found, I discovered Gloria Gaynor. I produced Never Can Say You. That was her first hit. And the Ramones, two and albums. Then everyone's going to wonder, watching here, your name's Tony, Tony bon, Jovi, bon Jovi. So uh, The band Bon Jovi is, uh, I put that together. He was my cousin. And I already had uh, the Ramones and the Talking Heads and the Aerosmith record that I'd produced. And uh, I had a lot of success with the studio. So it, he was my cousin. So I brought him in and, and put the band together. There was, there was no band at the time. Uh, I used the E Street Band to play on the original recordings. Hmm. And that was Runaway that I finally was able to secure a deal with uh, Polygram Records. And of course, the rest is history. But, but and we changed the spelling. I, I, I really didn't like the idea of calling it Bon Jovi, because at that time there was a, a clothing company called Bongiorno Jeans. I said, they're going to think we're tomato so uh, sauce or, or a clothing line. It, it doesn't sound right. And it was actually an agent that, that uh, the booking agent said that we should use that name because we, we had another name for the uh -huh. band at the time. I said, is that okay? So I still have that. I still have that name, except I spell it the other way. I can't spell it that way. Or Universal wouldn't be too happy about it. Now I don't want to confuse anybody. I'm Bon Jovi. The other engineer Bon Jovi, that's the artist, and I don't have to look like a rock star to do what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, so we fast forward to today, and you've come out with a way of using all your experience, knowledge in recording and producing and all that, to completely change the way that audio sounds in a car. Explain what you're doing here. Well, he here's what I did, and I'll give you a little history about how I came about uh, doing this. And, and uh, I had uh, been working with the 3M corporation in the marine industry on, on some acoustic applications for marine. And what they would do is they would fly me around the country. And when I flew around the country, they would rent cars for me. Well, when you work as an engineer for a company, you don't get, as a producer, you get to rent a Jaguar. But when you're working as an engineer, you're going to rent a Ford uh, a Focus or a Chevy Cavalier or a Dodge Neon. That's what I rented at the time. And a Toyota Corolla. And these are nice little cars, I thought. And I'm driving them. Some of them had electric windows and they all had air conditioning. Gee, but now we're in the, um, in the late 70s. And uh, I thought, these are nice cars. And I'm listening to the radio in there. And so, you know, that, is this the best they can do? Because surely we can do better sound than this. And I went and I uh, visited, I interviewed 35 car dealerships. It didn't start that way. And I said, what, what do you have? that you can, you can buy a car like this and you can have sound the way you have it in those luxury cars. And there's nothing. Well, why not? Well, because it's just not available. This goes back several years now. So being Power Station New York, I called the major suppliers of audio for the high-end cars. We won't name any names, but I called them all and everybody could pretty much figure out who they were. And I said, what do you guys have for these little cars, that little Dodge Neon or that little Toyota Corolla. So we don't have anything. So, well, why not? And of course, I present the question, what do you think the answer was that they gave me? And you'll never guess it, so I'll tell you. I said, well, we build sophisticated, high-end audio for luxury cars. We don't want our name associated with a Chevy Cavalier or a Dodge Neon. I said, well, why not? 
Well, if you like the sound that you can do in those luxury cars, why can't you give that to somebody who says, well, what we would tell them is to, to go to the Best Buy and buy that and then retrofit your car. So why can't we do that at the factory? And then I talked to some of the, the dealers, I mean, the, the manufacturers here in Detroit. And uh, what I decided to do is I set out and I figured there's got to be a way to do this that's cost effective and, and, is afford and, and, and can be uh, manufactured practically, uh, a practical manufacturing approach to this. So I started to look at the cars and I looked at the speakers in the cars and I realized that there's some really good, solid engineering. The engineers here in Detroit know what they're doing. Unfortunately, they don't have very much money with which to do it, but they're all very capable in the audio world. And they, they have limitations that are cost limitations, just like everything else on a car. So I said, okay, well, we'll start with the speakers that are already in the car and let's see how we can utilize that. And what I did, and the technology, we call it the digital power station technology. It's patented, and of course, it's all digital now. When I originally came to Detroit to see if there was interest, I have an agent here whose name is Greg Tom from GT Sales, and he set up appointments, and we went to all the big manufacturers, and they're, you know, they're, oh, this is pretty interesting what you have, but you know, you got all these boxes in the car, and it's not practical, and some of them said, you know, we're interested in what you're doing here, but when you, we, we, obviously, we can't manufacture, and I, I had set that car to see if, are, is there any interest in pursuing this if it's cost effective? A lot of them said, well, yes, there is. So I set about doing something that no one's ever done before. Now, when, when a, a phonograph record is made, it's usually made like Motown had a track, but it, by now it's 24 or 48. And each individual track or channel has an instrument. It has a bass on it or a drum and a keyboard and there's guitars and violins and horns and voice and, and background voices. Now, those proportions or how loud each of those elements are, are a function of what the artist wants to hear. And that is a function of the speakers that you're listening to it on in the control room in the studio. And generally these speakers, some of them are small and they're designed to deliver sound so that when you're finished, you know, you can hear, well, that's enough bass because the speaker's telling me that, and that's enough drums, and that's enough this, this, because the speaker is telling you and telling the artist, that's what I want my work to sound like. Well, okay, so we're, we're governed by these speakers. We don't use headphones. Now, if we get in a car, everything changes because the speakers are deficient because they, they don't have the dollars to spend, but they're very robust and, and, and rugged speakers. So the best thing to do, if it were possible, is to go into the car with that 24 channels of information and put it together until you hear, you might have to push the bass up a little higher, or maybe this would be lower, or this would be higher. So if you could do that in the car, well, you could get it to sound in the car the way it sounded in the studio. Well, obviously that's not practical. So I came up with a way to do that and to make it sound simple. Well, what we did is we digitally and aggressively modify the program material first. When you say program material, the, the, the source, the CD, the, the, the actual the, music, the actual music, or if it's coming over the radio, the, whatever you have, an MP3, an iPod, or, or it doesn't this, matter. This will do matter. it with anything. It doesn't, no. So in modifying that, and we do it very aggressively, we take apart the frequency response characteristics of the program material of that CD. Now, when you do that, it doesn't sound very good in that stage. And then we process that. We actually, we call it free, uh, we modulate those, that modified signal. And we make things louder, okay? And then what we do is, by doing that, we have all this, what we call headroom left over. Because if you try to equalize the sound, there's not, you're gonna run out of room either in the speaker or the amplifier. 
And because a car is a small room, there's not enough room in there to really reproduce the dynamics the way the artist intended it to do. So you have to modify the sound before you even get into the car. So we've, we first uh, uh, did that approach by aggressively modifying the program material. Well, when you do that, one of the byproducts of the way it's modified is you get all this extra room. So if the speaker needs more bass or it needs more high, I can do that without exceeding the design limitations of the speaker and taking into account the environment. Cars themselves act like amplifiers, just like a, a bass is a stand-up bass. So we take advantage of that. A lot of manufacturers will say, well, there's, there's all this sound in this particular frequency. So we'll put more speakers in there to, to fix that. So I say, well, okay, if I'm getting some help from the car, I'll spend that energy somewhere else. So as a result of that, we have the only 100% digital active technology introduced in both consumer electronics and in the automotive world. What it means by active, there are sections of the, the program of the technology of the processor that are actually constantly scanning the program material and looking, so I need more sound here, can I get it? And, it, and, it, and it'll, it'll raise those things that are too low and, and it'll also, it also addresses the bass or the low frequency by doing what's called acoustic coupling and we can kind of uh, make all those speakers in the bass area respond at the same time. So by, by aligning that time, you, you get more, it sounds like there's a, almost like a subwoofer, you get the advantage of that. And the speakers are robust enough to be able to, to take those modifications because the speaker doesn't know that we're modifying it. We, we could just as well go in there with a recording console and a, a multi-track digital recording and well, okay, well this is how much bass we need and this is, this is what the voice should sound like and we could do that but since we don't have the ability to do that, we're gonna do that digitally. And no one's ever done that before because if you talk to somebody, say, well, you don't touch the program material, that's taboo. Well, why not? Well, I can because I'm the person that put that on there in the first place and I know exactly what happened in the studio. So I'm gonna go back and modify that to fit that environment. So as a result of that, JVC was the first company to, to put us in an aftermarket radio. And I've been in about 250 makes and models of cars over a, a year and a half. So I have profiles for just about every car line that's out there. So in the, in the JVC application, we actually put a CD, a disc that, that codes the radio for a Toyota Corolla or a Ford Focus or, or a Toyota Camry or, or a, 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 a Chevy Impala or, or, or whatever the car may be or a, a pickup truck or something. So I've been in all those cars and we put that profile and it's active, it's always on, it's always working, it's always doing something to the sound. So it's not a passive device at all. There are some manufacturers that have uh, some equipment that you can buy or some uh, aftermarket things where you can, it'll listen to the car and it'll set equalization so that it's and it works. But ours is constant, it looks at the program material, it recognizes that there's a deficiency somewhere, it's gonna add that. If it sees that there's enough of bass or something at a particular frequency, it ignores that. So it does, it's that sophisticated, it can do that. And so for an automaker to do this, what? It's just a chip that goes in the radio what, or, or what, what is it? Here's what an automaker does. And, and, I, and I can tell you, when I first came to Detroit, there was a lukewarm reception. There was one company uh, who did uh, take a look at us and say, uh, maybe we should try this because this is interesting. And um, with, the, with the downturn in the economy and people having to downsize, I went from nobody calling me in Detroit to now 
I'm, I'm here today doing this interview, but my day started at 5 a.m. with meeting after meeting after meeting with. with now they want to hear. From now you. they want. Well, there are uh, there are some manufacturers that I can't talk about. They are going to implement it, and here's how it works: goes in the head unit, and what we do is we get with the radio manufacturer. And the radio manufacturer is a function of what the uh, car manufacturer tells us. They all use different, some of them use multiple manufacturers. And they say, you go here and then we'll, we'll set the meeting up for you because we want them to pay attention to what you're doing because we're interested because what I'm doing is uh, I'm, I'm saving cost and I'm saving weight. And those are two big things. How do you order. save cost and weight? Well, you save cost because we're not adding any speakers. We're using the factory speakers. We're, we're, we're not adding any weight because the system that we're doing, in, it uses uh, a, a digital signal processor in the radio. And in some cases, we're able to use the existing digital signal processor that will accept our code. So you're not adding any weight. And you're getting this huge improvement in sound. And I know you had an opportunity to listen to a, a, a car with the JVC radio. And obviously, you heard. There's, there is a there is a big difference when you activate the technology. In fact, uh, some of the OEs want that activation button to be on it. So we, we have in consumer electronics we have where well, you can turn the technology on, and it and it makes a big difference because we're taking advantage of the available uh, space in the mechanical design of that speaker by modifying the program material to tell it to tell that amplifier that. This really doesn't sound the way you think it does. What you're really hearing is this. Of course, the amplifier's dumb. It doesn't know. Neither does the speaker. The speaker's just going to respond to what you tell it to do. But in order to do that effectively, you have to address the program material. There's no other way to do that unless you put amplifiers and speakers in the car. So what you're able to do is take a base audio system, yes. add this chip to it, and give an automaker a premium sound system you get, yep, you get a, for just the cost of a chip. Right. And they don't have to put in bigger speakers, which no. saves them real estate, as they talk right. about, yep. just you know, space inside the yes. car. And those speakers have huge magnets on them, so that's how you're saving weight. You don't have to go to big ones. No, right. Well, the, the, the entry. Like I, originally, it was for the entry-level market. I was trying to find an upgrade for that. But now we're earlier today. We had a meeting to come up with a, an, an upgrade. So it's the Bon Jovi acoustic system we're talking about coming with a Bon Jovi acoustics platinum, a gold system, and a platinum system, which would be start to inch its way toward the the, the luxury car market. But we can do that at a fraction, not a fraction of the cost, but a way lower. Cost. Yeah, much lower cost. We're, we're talking to uh, amplifier and, and speaker manufacturers right now. And, and also OEs are, 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 are taking an interest in what I'm doing. No one's doing this. So it's in the aftermarket now through JVC. Through JVC. It's and we will see it from an unnamed automaker oh, when? Very soon. This year? This year. Well, it'll be introduced by a major manufacturer. And we're kind of excited about that because it's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to bring something to people who buy those entry-level cars and say, you know, just because you're driving a Jaguar or a Cadillac, I can, I can do that with my Toyota Corolla or my Ford Focus or something like that. Because, you know, I, I'm all about, I, I want to bring something to the masses that, that's cost-effective. So, so we have weight savings. We have a cost savings. It's easy to implement. And I'm using the Bon Jovi. It's my name. So I figured, well, there's a good segue. <laughs> and I have all this background. Uh, coming from 45 years, given away how old I am, starting at Motown <laughs> in 1966, and bringing all that experience, and my, I have enough of an engineering background, I understand what's going on, and I understand uh, the basics of, of accepted standards and practices from the engineering level, but then I can go in there and say, all right, now that that's done, now it's time to really, to really do it. And it takes, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I, how long does it take to, to profile a car? It takes about 
five days, about six hours a day. And what I tell my friend, and then two cases of beer, because it's, it's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely tedious work, yeah. and you have to take a break. And when you you list, you have to listen to all types of music and all th that were recorded at different time periods. You have to go all the way back to the 50s to the present day because the technology and techniques change. And the way we m make music today, it's all synthesized. So we have to address all of those issues and when, when we do this. Well, Tony Bon Jovi, thanks so much for coming in and well, telling us you. not just your life story, but this yeah. really cool stuff that you're doing in cars as well. And thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. Real it was pleasure. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. it's been great.